Welcome to Humans of Fintech, the podcast where I share the inspiring stories of diverse leaders bringing equity to financial systems through fintech. I'm Nicole Casperson. In this episode, I sit down with the Dr. Daniel Crosby. Daniel Crosby is a psychologist, behavioral finance expert, the chief behavioral finance officer at Orion, a very prominent wealth tech company. And he just so happens to also be a New York Times bestselling author with his first book, Personal Benchmark, Integrating Behavioral Finance and Investment Management, hitting that NYT bestseller list. He also has his second book out, The Laws of Wealth. And I'm just such a fan. And Daniel and I have become friends through the internet and now through podcasting and in real life and just through having so many shared values and perspectives on how psychology really impacts fintech, financial services, and our entire world's relationship with money. So Daniel and I dive right into it. We get to know his background. How does one become a behavioral finance or almost like a money psychologist? And we're getting into the nitty gritty of how fintech can play such this huge role in helping more people understand their money behaviors and help them make the world a a much better place. So I'm so excited for you to hear this talk with Daniel. He is a huge inspiration to me and the entire fintech is fem ecosystem. So enjoy the conversation. Daniel Crosby, welcome to Humans of Fintech. I'm so excited to finally have you on this show. I've been a fan of yours for long before Humans of Fintech ever existed or Fintech is Femme. So thank you for gracing us. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. Yeah. Well, on the show, we typically start with some background on our guests. So I know your story starts with being a professional psychologist and you entered into psychology to actually help women, right? There's actually a very personal story there. So feel free to jump in there and we'll keep going with learning more about you. Yeah. So I went to one year of college and after one year of college, I actually took two years off of college to go on a mission for my church. So I was in the Philippines for two years. And so after two years of trying to help people, right, I came back very much in that mindset. And I also came back to someone very close to me who had a very severe eating disorder. Uh, She had not had one when I left. When I came back, she was sort of deep in the throes of a very serious eating disorder. And so in my efforts to help her and and very much still in this mindset of, you know, wanting to help people, I just absolutely fell in love with psychology. And so my dad is a financial advisor. So previous to this sort of one-two punch, I had thought I would be a financial advisor myself. I saw he had a nice life and He enjoyed his work. And so I thought, you know, this is what I'm going to do. But I came back and sort of these two situations made me fall in love with psychology in specific, sort of with an eye to helping women with eating disorders. So graduated college two years later, started a PhD program three days after I graduated college. And about three years into that PhD program, I just absolutely sort of fell apart. I mean, there's sort of no easy way to say it. I just couldn't do it. You know, I was working with 30 or 40 clients a week already as sort of part of the fulfillment of my doctoral hours. And some of them were just, it was just really intense stuff. I mean, it's just a job where you're seeing 40 or 50 people a week, many of whom are having the worst day of their lives. 
many of whom have been through sort of horrific stuff. And I was working with court-ordered people in some cases who had done horrible things and were very happy to see me. And I started when I was 23 years old. So it's like, you're trying to give people advice about life and you're 23 and you haven't figured your own life out yet. And so I just was like, look, I don't know if I need to do this anymore. But I, you know, I had a paid for PhD program and I, I wanted to finish that. And so I came to my dad, who's a is to this day a financial advisor. And I said, look, I love learning about humans. I love studying human behavior. And I love thinking deeply about why people do the things that they do and studying that. But I don't think I can do it in a medical context. Like, I don't think I'm cut out for this work. And my dad said, well, hey, there's a ton of psychology in my work. So I wonder if there's anything for you there. And Nicole, at the time, I looked at him like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I had always envisioned my dad as sort of first and foremost a stock picker. I mean, my dad is to this day, I think, a relatively active in sort of selecting asset allocations and securities for his clients and sort of secondarily a salesperson. And so I was like, what is my dad doing to help people? And, you know, what does psychology have to do with anything? And that comment, sort of long story short, put me on a path to discover behavioral economics. And what I've tried to do with my career is be an intermediary for people like my dad, who's a wirehouse financial advisor in flyover country, who's not reading academic journals you know, about behavioral finance and sort of be a bit of a translator between the ivory tower and the people doing the work every day. Really incredible. And I love that it's, you know, your parent that helped inspire the next phase. Because what you went through is, in my head when you were telling the story, I'm like, burnout, but so much more than just regular burnout in trying to find a happiness there, right? Knowing what you really wanted to do, but also trying to figure out a healthier version of it for yourself, I think is a key element there. And then finding the inspiration just from your own dad and, and him pushing you that way. I mean, how was it finding like your place as, I mean, today you're a chief behavioral officer at a wealth tech fintech company, but I imagine the journey to finding a tech company interested in having a behavioral finance officer was a pretty interesting journey. Yeah, that was an interesting journey. So <laughs> if you think about when I finished my PhD, it's the start of the great financial crisis. And so here I am with a degree in clip with a PhD in clinical psychology, going out and applying for all of these sort of behavioral science, behavioral business science, organizational behavior type roles. And everyone's like, no, because you're a clinical guy. There's an educational track that is organizational behavior and industrial psychology. And so everywhere I applied, everyone just sort of said no. And finally, I found a consultancy here in Atlanta, and the gentleman who owned the CEO of this small little consulting firm was himself a former clinician who had transitioned to the business world. So he was the only one who sort of had the eyes to see it was possible. I mean, everyone else, I was summarily dismissed. I mean, it's like it wasn't even, I don't even think my resume got it. But with this guy, I think he saw a bit of himself in me. And so he was expansive enough in his thinking to give me a shot. I only stayed there for like 18 months, though, 
uh, you know, effectively because I saw what I was billing and I saw what I was getting paid and I said, oh, well, like, I mean, you know, I'm billing whatever, I'm billing $700 an hour and I'm not getting paid a million bucks a year. So I think I can do okay on my own. Mm-hmm. And so then I went out on my own. And again, though, again, we're still kind of in the Great Recession. And I was going to companies saying, hey, I can help you with your behavioral economics problems. And literally, they would say to me, what the hell are you talking? Like, what is that? What are you even talking about? So yeah, I mean, it was a long road. I mean, it's been whatever now, 15 years or so. I mean, do you think that the world, the change that just has happened in culture and society and people being today, I mean, it must be almost kind of refreshing. I mean, our financial services industry is taking a minute to get there. But generally, the cultural change and shift is that people are more in touch with wanting to know their inner you know, selves, to want to know who they are, to want to know how their psychology works. And especially as it pertains to money now, you know, the consumer is on that track. And so it's just getting our industry, especially some of the more traditional financial services to, to realize that, to realize there's a dire need there. But I mean, that trajectory has really changed. At least I feel like it has as a professional. Has it changed? (laughs) I think asset management was actually early to the game because I think you talk to any trader and they would say, yeah, like there's a lot of psychology to the work that we do. So after a number of years on my own, I was hired by Brinker Capital, right? Like an institutional asset manager. And then Brinker Capital was acquired by Orion, the large fintech for whom I now work. So I think it's kind of gone in that direction. But Nicole, just this year, I have seen the biggest explosion of interest in this. I mean, it's been trending in the right direction for a really long time. But I think the great financial crisis, COVID, and then just, you know, sort of the rumors of recession and things that we're going through now have really locked people into how critical the human element is. And I think the younger generation has played a huge part in that too. I think there was a generation that was painting with a broad brush here, sort of money at any cost, like money is the ultimate good. And I think then the rising generations are saying, wait a minute, it's a little more complicated than that. And I'm not willing to give up everything for just more, more, more. And as I think as the younger generation has those conversations, I think we move more and more in a better direction. Well, and the pandemic, I think, was the huge push to get us there, right? It was the pandemic showed us that, ooh, just focusing on money isn't the best situation. Just focusing on making as much money as possible at my job and hustle culture and just working to the bone is, is not exactly the best thing for me as an individual because the world can shut down and all of that can go away. So it's getting back to the core of what do I value if another pandemic were to happen? How would I make my life full of of riches? You know, riches that don't just fade away because I've lost a job. And I think that's tough, I think, because and I focus so much on the human element, too. And it can come across as something that is right, is just the softness. But I have found it to be, especially today, just as, if not more strategic than any other business strategy, any other very profit-centric business strategy. This is too, you know, like this is a very important piece to that. And I think there's still, that's like maybe some of the disconnects in the industry that we're going to have to keep put it piecing together. People like us are going to have to keep just like talking about it, you know? 
Yeah, you know, Merrill Lynch did a meta-analysis, so like a study of all the studies in 2016, and they looked at the value of financial advice, right? And they were looking at financial advisors, but you could certainly think of a tech-enabled advice solution as, as providing some of the same basic services. And what they found is like the blocking and tackling, right? Product selection, tax management, the stock picking, this sorts of stuff, like the meat and potato stuff, the stuff we consider essential. It was additive, like it helped, but it helped at the range of about 30 to 60 basis points per year. And the behavioral stuff, like client profiling, handholding, decision management, emotion management, was additive at the level of about 65 to 240 basis points a year. So I think we have to keep telling with our stories and with data that this isn't this sort of wimpy, lame peripheral consideration. Like these things, these considerations drive real business outcomes and you ignore them at your own peril. And at this point, there's so much knowledge around it that it's a willful ignorance if you're not paying attention to it. And then that's like a whole other frustration. But this is why I focus <laughs> on the fintech companies that are interested in paying attention. But I think so my audience being largely just the broader fintech ecosystem, I think there's still not a full understanding of behavioral finance and its role that can be played in fintech. So I think let's start at the top. For those that do not know, what is like a great way to understand what behavioral finance is? So sort of my colloquial definition of behavioral finance is just finance that accounts for the messiness of human beings, right? So most of our traditional econometric models were built on this idea of perfect rationality and utility maximization, which is basically like people are going to make decisions that maximize their wealth and they're going to make decisions that are in their own best interests, right? It's 1.30 now. I've already made 10 decisions today that defy those two conditions. And I think anyone who's ever been in a relationship, like anyone who's ever examined the way they act with money can tell you that they're not these sort of optimizing robots. And so what we know about human behavior is we shouldn't be building our tech and our finance solutions on this sort of pie-in-the-sky idealized notion of, of who you and I are. We should look and kind of get down in the grit and the dirt and look at the beautiful, crazy, wild, goofy world of humanity and build tech and build systems that account for that. And it's to the personalization trend that we're really seeing in financial services and that you really can't just build products, services, use technology to make it you know, faster and more accessible if you're not taking into account the part where it does need to retrofit a lot of different types of individuals and it does need to be personalized. The one size fits all trope has gone. It is no longer here with us. I think it died with the pandemic. So when it comes to the like financial planning and wealth management space, how have you just really kind of ingrain that into that environment because even in my investment news days, I mean, I was still writing about, oh, financial advisors, you're no longer just a stock picker. You are now someone who has to have a real relationship with these, with your clients. You have to be someone that understands who they are and someone whose values align. So how do you get that to scale? 
yeah. in wealth management. And- <laughs> yeah. So I, I think there's a couple of the tricks here. One of them, which I sort of hate to admit, is that nobody is asking for this. You know, in fact, when you ask clients about this, they specifically refute it. I mean, they specifically say, no, I don't need that. Because kind of historically, it's been pitched like, hey, you're broken, you're screwed up, you're fallible. Do you want our guy to kind of help you with this? And so like Natixis, a a handful of years ago, Natixis asked sort of these different things that advisors do and then ask advisors and clients to rank them by sort of how important they were to them. And one of them was what I would call the behavioral piece. It's sort of like emotional management and handholding and things like that. 83% of advisors said that was the most important thing, 6% of clients. So what we find is that you've got to embed this a little bit. You've got to kind of make it seamless because clients want the outcomes that are driven by behavioral finance. They'll say like, you know, I want someone who understands me. I want someone who listens to me. I want someone who can help me reach my goals and I'll articulate my values. Like that's all behavioral finance. But if you say, hey, do you want someone to keep you from being such a screw up? They go, no. And so we kind of have to make this seamless. So we have all these solutions and none of them, we have a behaviorally informed risk tolerance questionnaire, which in addition to looking at risk tolerance and risk capacity, looks at sort of your emotional makeup, but it's pretty seamless. Like it's just kind of baked in the process and it feels like you're taking a risk tolerance questionnaire. It's not like open up, here comes some medicine. And so one of the things that tech does very well is tech is so ubiquitous. It's such a part of our lives that you can kind of hide the vegetables, you know, in there and get it where it needs to go. The other thing that tech is really good at is making things timely. One of the pitfalls of behavioral finance is like even early in my career, we were really reliant on financial education. So like I would go speak to a group of investors and say, okay, like here's how you could do better. Here's some of the behavioral traps you fall into. Do this, do that. Well, they clap and they have a nice time. And then the research suggests that they forget 90% of it within 48 hours of having listened to it, right? I mean, that's just kind of, we got a lot going on. And so what tech can do is give people behavioral prompts in a timely way instead of teaching someone about the different rates of taxation for different holding periods for a stock, you can say with your tech-enabled app, as that person's about to sell, you say, okay, you're going to pay whatever. You're going to pay 40% on this because you've held it for eight months. If you hold it for a couple more months, you're going to pay a lot less. What do you want to do? And it's called just-in-time education or real-time education you're not relying on people to hear a lesson once and then sort of live by it for the rest of your life. Uh, Tech is great at giving that just-in-time education. And and then the last thing is just choice architecture. There's all these interesting examples of the way that tech is presented to us, the way that it's architected, the colors, the design, the placement of different widgets has a dramatic impact on how people do. And there's all these wild studies, right? Like the order you sequence food in a buffet line has a dramatic effect on the way people eat. And like even stuff like this one always blows my mind because it's so consequential. Back during Bill Clinton's days, back during Don't Ask, Don't Tell, 
when they were considering whether gay men and women could serve in the military, they would send out these surveys and they would say, do you approve of gay men and women serving in the military? And when they worded it that way, almost everyone said, yes, I approve of that. I want that. And then they would word it sort of more harshly and in a more faceless way and say, do you want homosexuals in the army or you know something like that? And then almost everyone would say no. So people are really easily manipulated by their environment and by subtle, subtle changes. And so by being cognizant of the placement of that widget or the color or whatever, we can really help our clients make better decisions in ways that they're largely unaware of. And I think what you're getting at for me is there's so much I'll often get asked, you know, what's the, all right, well, what's the big company plan or what's the big thing that can help us? And it's like, it's the little things, it's little things. It's like all the little pieces that you can put together or the everyday actions that you can put in front of a user or a client. And that's the big change. Like that's the big company strategy is the day to day. And when GameStop's stock surge happened, I think that was the best example of and just, you, you know, even just like some of these investing apps, like it's those are good examples of how you can also channel bad behavior. So how do we kind of take those lessons learned, right, and continue to channel the good behavior? I mean, at the end of the day, a part of the reason I'm so passionate about fintech outside of wanting a better financial future for the world is that it has helped me in my behaviors. You know, I heard one of your talks last year and talking about how even just having an emergency vault that's labeled something happy will, you know, vacation will mean that I will put more money into there and it will be more fruitful and it will be more exciting and I'll be more dedicated to it. You were so right, Dr. Crosby. That shit works. Yeah. I yeah. like... <laughs> I like made a vacation fund. I put it in there. I'm going to India next month. Like, oh, that's it, awesome. It, yeah. Like I took your advice and it worked. So first of all, I'm thrilled for you and I'm excited yeah. to see the pictures. <laughs> if you look at Netflix, so when Netflix added sort of the auto, whatever you call it, the button that says, yeah. you know, the auto next episode button, 70% increase in viewing behavior, in time viewing. Imagine the impact on Netflix's business to a 70% uptick in viewer behavior when all you had to do was put a little automated button on it. The process of auto-enrolling and auto-escalating retirees into retirement accounts has led to tens of billions in extra savings. What you talked about, there's evidence to suggest that people who are in a labeled account save two and a half times as much as those who are in an unlabeled account. So naming it Nicole's India Fund is the simplest thing in the world and it is incredibly powerful. And businesses are leaving like incredible value on the table by not thinking about how humankind interfaces with their tech. Well, and I think today what's kind of taking that conversation to the bigger fintech ecosystem, you know, fintech's having a, a tough time, if you will, this year. And I hear it a lot. It's like back to fundamentals, right? Uh -huh. Everyone's like back to fundamentals. And I think that to me, that means, okay, well then how do we have that more human centric approach to creating products for consumers? And once again, it's not a big blanket giant product that you need to make something new. 
you need to do little things to a product to make it better in the first place. Like instead of trying to create something new, let's fix what is needs to be fixed and leave broken what is broken and should stay broken, if you know what I mean. Like how do we integrate more behavioral finance into these broader fintech applications, especially when users really want it? So in keeping with your back to fundamentals thing, one of the things that I would say is at a time like this, when it feels like the mood in the air right now is like, here we go again. It's like, we just had COVID. Then we had the insanity of sort of the mania after COVID. And then we had the dip last year. And now we're back to like, everyone's kind of walking on eggshells. And there's this feeling of here we go again. And behavior is one of the only things you can control, right? When people come to me and they learn that I'm in finance, they're like, what's the president going to do? What's going to happen in Ukraine? What's the virus going to do? And like all these things are outside of our control, but our behavior is back to fundamentals. It's something we can always control. The second thing, I won't go on too long about this because I already talked about it a bit, but the second thing is we have to realize that these things matter. Like we have to realize that part of being back to fundamentals is that the human being is the foundation of every enterprise. And so this isn't some peripheral nice to have thing. And then the last thing that I would say is what you just said, which is that people love this. The way that you have raving fans is by deeply understanding and personalizing your application. And so much of what passes for personalization right now in tech is like so shallow. It's like, oh, uh, here's your birthday. Like we figured out when your birthday is. We're going to send you a little thing on your birthday. Like that's not personalization. I mean, psychology can take you deep to someone's core, their essence, their personality, and you can tailor your whole offering around something deep and core and fundamental to them. And here we are doing birthdays and like a couple of little hobbies and it's lame. And until we figure out that there's a lot more complexity and a lot more sophistication to the personalization process, nothing. And do you think that's like our biggest roadblock right now? Or is it even just still, we're still trying to convince companies to even take this seriously? I think there's great, like I said, this year, I have been so excited this year. I just feel like there's a flood of acceptance this year more than any other year for these ideas. So I think we're getting there. But, you know, the future sort of unequally distributed, right? Like some sort of forward thinking tech companies are way more bought into this than others. But there certainly are some. I think probably the biggest obstacle is just what you said, just sort of a belief that this is sort of to the side or nice to have. And then I think the second biggest obstacle is sort of a misunderstanding of behavioral finance as being negative. Like for many years, it was, you're a mess. We're going to help you be less of a mess. And fund companies and fintechs weaponized behavioral finance to make people insecure the same way the beauty industry has sort of weaponized beauty to make people think they're no one without zit cream or makeup or whatever, right? We sort of weaponized people's insecurities to try and get them to buy our stuff or to use our services. And there's a whole positive side of behavioral finance too, which is the study of what makes us happy and how money can make us happy and how tech can enable a richer, fuller life and how money can be spent in ways that, that bring us joy. And so I think that's probably the second biggest obstacle. Yeah. And I just like there's even just so much shame that comes with 
understanding your own psychology, which is so weird and something that I think we are slowly getting out of as as well. But exactly to your point is switching, flipping the narrative so that it isn't considered this you know, negative thing that there is something wrong with you. And so you have to go understand your money psychology. It's quite literally everyone on the planet needs to understand this is a very human like connectivity and that all of us should and have to go through. And I mean, shit, it should be taught in schools, in my opinion. But in your opinion, what's maybe a really good example of behavioral finance in tech at work? And it can be if it's at your company, that's cool, too. Don't worry. Yeah. So I want to spend a minute (laughs) with the shame because I thought you made a great point. Oh my gosh. We'll do that first. Yeah. So I haven't been a therapist in a minute, right? Like it's been a long time since I've been a therapist, but one of the enduring gifts of having been a therapist and sat with people in all stages of happiness and sadness and, you know, excellence and disarray is that you sort of get the full palette of the human condition. And I think most of us who aren't therapists are walking around seeing the highlight reels of everyone else's life, right? You see the highlight reel of someone else's life on Instagram. You see the highlight reel on LinkedIn. You see the highlight reel at work, right? Like where you're dressed up and you're putting on a good face. And having been a therapist and having sort of seen the whole range of human emotion and human functioning has made me so much more compassionate with myself and with other people. And I just wish I could give everyone that's listening to the show the gift of that, to know that whatever your failings, whatever your desires, whatever your wants, wishes, you're not that strange. There's there's lots of people like you. Whatever you've been through, whatever you're going through, we're all a mess and we're all faking it and doing the best we can. And so I loved you bringing up shame there because like, I just want to destigmatize mental health broadly and sort of the financial struggles around money, which I mean, money, most recent survey from the AP, the American Psychological Association, number one worry in people's lives, money. Number two worry was the economy. Number three worry was work. So it's like money, where you spend your money, where you make your money, right? And so- People are wrecked about this and we act like we're okay and we're not. So like we need shows like this to have that conversation. 100%. It's like we not only do we have a financial crisis and education crisis in America, but the even bigger element of that is a mental health crisis. And to think that that isn't attached to so heavily to our financial services industry is a big mistake because it is, like you said, a fundamental piece. I mean, money is like leading cause of divorce. It's the leading cause of all these things, of stress, of everything. And even eToro put out a survey the other day on my birthday saying that even right now, you know, investors are still more comfortable talking today. They're more comfortable talking about politics or religion than investing and money. I'm shocked, especially in this political environment. Yeah. I mean, how is that like possible? And I even think to today, I, I do try really hard to be someone who's like, let go of the shame. I'm like very cool with letting people know, you know what? Hey, like I'm a Henry. I'm just trying to figure out how to start generational wealth for my family. I'm like, I'm more than happy to share with you how my salary has been throughout my life and 
as a woman and a person of color and in this crazy job world and how one can make it better. Like these are the conversations, especially with, you know, women. I feel this like heavy responsibility to be that open because if I am, then that is so inspiring to someone else to also be that open. And it's really not until we start talking to each other that we realize, oh, one, we're not alone. And then two, oh, we can work out these problems so much better when we understand each other and then we work on it together. So you didn't know this, but you're actually quite a brilliant psychologist. So what when you know the you always sort of suspected, right? So when you're doing therapy, like step one is normalization because people feel like a freak, right? They're coming to your office. They feel like they're the only person in the world that's felt the way that they do and they're not. And so same thing when people are going to get financial help, the number one people, the number one reason people fail to go get financial assistance or financial advice is fear of judgment. So the number one thing you do is normalize. And that's what you're doing by talking about your salary, by talking about your status, by talking about what you've got and what you don't got. Right. And then the number two things we got to give people hope. You know, one of my favorite psychologists, Rollo May, said depression is the inability to construct a future. And I think a lot of people look out on the horizon and they're like, it's bleak. They don't see how things are going to get better. And so if we can bake this into our tech, normalizing what people are going through, giving them hope for a brighter tomorrow, we're going to do a lot of good stuff. A wise woman told me that it's always easier to be cynical than aspirational. And so that's the work is hope, right? Is being aspirational, is hoping that you know, while there are many things that technology has done that is both bad and good. I do fundamentally believe that covering technology from the perspective of it making as many people's lives better as possible is what else is there? Yeah. <laughs> what else could I do besides just normalize and talk about it and create stories around it? Because if my mom knew, my immigrant mother knew that I was like running around talking about my salary to people, I'm sure she would not approve. But that's how, you know, you grow up. Yeah. And and then it's about just kind of deconstructing so much of how you how you grew up and then also understanding that, you know, whatever your parents told you, there is also so much complexity to that because they're a human that had their own upbringing. And and so you have to understand that they're coming from a whole different type of place. And anyway, a lot of empathy that is uh, driven by it and a lot of thinking. But back to the part about <laughs> a good example of behavioral finance and tech. <laughs> I know. Give me a good example. I want to know. I'll give you two. Okay. One is us and one is not us. So okay. uh, Betterment. I know Betterment are friends of your show. So Betterment was early to the just-in-time education game. So they would have little prompts that would come up that would let people know about the tax and other consequences of their decisions. You know, the other thing that Betterment did, and this is a great example, I think, of how tech enablement can further good behavioral outcomes when there was volatility in the markets, Betterment used to send out blanket reminders like, hey, don't panic, like nothing to see here. Volatility is part of the game. Don't worry about it. Well, what Betterment found, because tech can give us all this data, is they were actually causing problems by doing that. Like they were sending out these communiques to people. And like, yeah, some people were worried and got this and were like, okay, that helps. But more people were doing what they should be doing, which is nothing. They were just going about their business and ignoring their accounts. 
And then they get this thing that says, hey, there's nothing to worry about. And your natural inclination is to go, oh, gosh, like, should I be worried? Are you sure? (laughs) And so that's what I would do. (laughs) And so now they've gotten much smarter about how they do this. On our end, one of the things that we just rolled out, I'm super excited, is called the B520. So like behavioral finance 20. It's a 20 question assessment. And I did research around what do people fight about when they fight about money? Because the thought was, like you said, leading cause of divorce in North America, 12% of married couples have never had a single conversation about money. And so we said, there's all this stigma around money. So we said, if we find what people disagree about, these are going to be the points of importance, and we can do some assessment and some education around that. So it's a three-minute survey, gives people deep dive on their personality, strengths and weaknesses with respect to money. And it allows them to compare their results with their partner. And what's cool about this is that we all come from these different worlds, right? Like you grew up with the immigrant mother who has immigrant mother attitudes about money. And I grew up in Alabama, right? With one parent who came from a very wealthy family and one parent who came from a very poor family and those two kind of worlds colliding. And we all grow up in sort of these little microcosms, these little bubbles And then we get together with someone we love and these sort of unspoken realities bump up against each other. But if we can call those out in a non-pejorative way and just say, hey, this is what I'm like. This is what you're like. Neither one's good. Neither one's bad. And give some points for having conversations. I think we can do some real good in the world. So I think the B-Fight 20 is super cool. It's It's my favorite thing I've ever built. I'm going to make me and my partner take it together. I mean, lucky for him, I am in this fintech world. We've done it. It's sat down. You know, I mean, it is a you want to get close with your significant other. Sit down and share how much debt you both have. (laughs) Sit down and sit down and share like where you're at, like how many student loans you have left, like how much. And it truly does because you know, it's understanding kind of back to your comment earlier about like the whole environment around you. If him and I don't aren't aligned in what we both need and then what we kind of can use help with each other, then, you know, this great big world is hard by yourself. It's possible, but it's very hard. And if you do are lucky enough to have a partner that, you know, you love and it does make it a lot easier when you're aligned money wise and then understand each other from that standpoint, because then you can curate your home, you can curate your life, you can plan the vacations, you can do all of the things that make you a happy, full human. But to not have that conversation does not set you and your relationship up for success. It doesn't set up your future kids for success. It doesn't set up anyone for success. So, you know, it's huge. I can't wait to take this survey. I mean, does it feel really cool to be like, I feel like you're like first to market as like chief behavioral finance officer in fintech. So, I mean, shout out to Orion because there's not many people like me, right? Yeah. And the things that they've empowered me to do are really special. And we've got some stuff coming out this year that's just going to, it's amazing. The vision that my boss and and the rest of the crew have is, is just fantastic. And just a real heart to do right by investors and use tech to do that. It's been special. Yes. Well, big fan of the Orion team and not just because I got to go to your fun conference <laughs> and moderate, but that was such a treat. But yes, well, I will close this out with my final question, which is if we need to be the change that 
we wish to see. What change do you wish to see in fintech and how do you embody it? I think in some ways, financial wealth is only a very small part of overall wealth. And so what I want to do is measure personal wellness right alongside financial wellness. And that's something I'm advocating for right now. You should be able to monitor and watch your wholeness and your mood and your happiness and your wellness with the same level of precision and accuracy as you do the rest of your portfolio. And I do, I think that's the purview of fintech. And I want to help get that in the hands of of everyday folks. And I think we're going to make it happen. So Hell yeah. Well, I do think we're on this real tipping point where the stars are kind of aligning. I'm sure for you, like I said, for you, that must feel pretty refreshing coming from the days of, hi, I'm a uh, behavioral psychologist. (laughs) I would like to help you insert financial institution. And I'm looking at you like, hee hee hee, ha ha ha, what are you talking about? Exactly. Oh my gosh. And now you're Daniel Crosby. You're a New York Times bestselling author times what, two? Times two. Yeah, and a chief behavioral finance officer in fintech and all of these amazing things. So, I mean, thank you for persisting. Thank you for being here. And thanks for letting me know that I'm a psychologist by proxy, too. I'm trying. I'm learning. I could go back to school. Emotionally intelligent people just get it. And like, you you don't have to go to school. Like you landed on it without knowing. And thank you for having the right conversations. So you're doing God's work here. We're going to keep doing God's work until my voice goes hoarse and then I'll rest and then keep doing it again. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you again, Daniel. Such a treat to have you on. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. To hear our next story from another diverse leader, be sure to tune in next week. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our show and give it a five-star rating as it helps our message reach more people who want to find belonging too.